Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hello, you're listening to Nerdette from WBEZ in Chicago. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. This week, we get to know great lady nerds of the LGBT movement. Plus, we talk to the creators of a weird and wonderful podcast called Welcome to Night Vale. Before we head off to Night Vale, just a reminder that we also spend time every week in the Seven Kingdoms. It's in our spin-off podcast, Nerdette Recaps Game of Thrones with Peter Segel. You know, the guy who hosts Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. In each recap episode, we analyze character motivations, theorize about what will happen next, and take listener questions. If this sounds like something you nerd would like to do, join us for that every week. That's all in addition to our main show, This One, Nerdette, and this week, The Voices from Night Vale. All that and more this week on Nerdette, because everybody's a little nerdy about something. Make it snappy, nerd! Nerds! listening to Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita here with Greta Johnson. Recently, we sat down with the creators of a podcast called Welcome to Night Vale, Jeffrey Craner and Joseph Fink, along with a couple of cast members as well. We'll hear from them in a little bit. It's an utterly bizarre, mysterious, fascinating show. There's actually a really good iTunes review description of it, which says that Welcome to Night Vale is a cross between Lake Wobegon and a Stephen King novel. Joseph Fink reveals the source of that weirdly thoughtful sentiment. What that review is, is it's a review written by my mom about two days after we started the podcast. Oh, I love Uh, that. And it shows up like it showed up in like marketing material for our book. It shows up regularly on radio shows. People will be like, I hear it described this way. And, I uh, hear your mother thinks. <laughs> yep. That's so perfect. And it's all, yeah, my mom wrote that particular description. See, we That's always amazing. joke that the only one really listening to our podcast is our mothers a bunch of times. So I think we're all in agreement yeah, yeah. that mothers are important to podcast growth. Yeah, yep. I feel like I bring my mom up at least once an episode. Uh-huh. So I'm glad this isn't just us. This yep. is good. This is really good. But how do you guys describe it to people? And how did you describe it to people as you were pitching them to come be a part of it? Most people, when they think of podcasts, they think a comedian sitting and yammering with another comedian, right? <laughs> I'd say we often don't pitch it. When we do pitch it, we tend to do it a lot more long form. We're sort of forced by HarperCollins, our publisher, and people who ask for like a press release for our show to be a little bit more concise. And <laughs> so we sometimes truncate to just that, the Lake Wobegon Stephen King thing. But no, the great thing about it is, is that it really did sort of start just growing slowly. Our first episode, I think we had maybe 50 downloads, which is apparently the sum total of all of our close friends and relatives. (laughs) And, um, you know, we started a Twitter account shortly after that and a Facebook page, mostly just to make weird jokes because we didn't really have anything other than the podcast for Night Vale. Really, we've rarely had to sort of explain it other than when we sometimes we arrive at theaters who don't know who we are and they're loading us in like, what is this? What's happening? (laughs) Um, so we do our best. So sometimes we truncate it to, uh, 
it's a community it's a fictional community radio broadcast from a weird desert town things like that is is kind of a, a nice short way to do it but most of the people that are involved in the show are friends of ours that we've known through the New York Neo-Futurists or just other actors. Some people are people that we met online, like Mara Wilson. We just became Twitter friends with her. And uh, eventually we're like, hey, you should record this voice for the faceless old woman. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, fortunately, it turns out that she's a super delightful person to be around. And so it's been really great for us in that way. I hosted mornings at a at the NPR affiliate station in Fairbanks, Alaska for four oh, years. Oh, wow. Okay. And we would actually do the Aurora forecast every day on the radio. Like we would talk about oh, the wow. lights in the sky, which I just think is so hilarious now meeting you guys. Just like, <laughs> it's real. It's real. It's <laughs> super real. It's the Arctic desert. Yeah. It's real. <laughs> and the lights mean something. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> How much do you think the success of the show is just like this beautiful societal acceptance of weirdness? I think that's a lot of it. I think we were coming along at a time when podcasts were sort of exploding. There are so few serial storytelling podcasts, you know, with an, and so I think that's part of it. I think the, the loveliness of Cecil's voice and just how calming and wonderful that is. And so I think that goes a long way. And I think the Weird Town USA storyline is, is a really popular one. It's always sort of existed. And I'm happy to be sort of riding on that as well, too. I think that that's a popular thing. And, and I would say, finally, we've heard a lot from listeners that the fact that the lead character is gay and the fact that there is sort of varying levels of representation. I think we hear from a lot of, especially teenagers and 20-somethings that are part of the LGBTQ community and, and that the representation on the show is very important to them. That means a lot to us as well. There's an outsider quality to Night Vale that I think people find a lot of comfort in. What has it been like to have this community start to sort of add details that you hadn't written yet? Do you find it collaborative or is it strange to have that dual universe for the work that you're making out in the world? I guess neither. Like, it's not (laughs) strange. Like, it seems like a natural outshoot of that. But it's also not collaborative in that we don't use those ideas or those images. To me, it's just kind of this separate world. There's like the separate world of fandom, that it's this this idea of fan ideas about the world and fan ideas of what things look like. And we absolutely don't discourage that. We don't try and struggle against that because that's an excellent thing. Um, but we also really try and separate ourselves from that in terms of I, I've never read I mean, there's thousands and thousands of Night Vale fan fictions. I've never read a single word of them. And I never will because I don't want to mix my ideas with that. Um, and, and you know, we just don't describe characters visually really right. ever unless it's really Unless they particular. don't have faces. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, unless there's a very specific detail that is involved in the plot. You know, the fact that the character Hiram McDaniels is a five-headed dragon, that particular <laughs> visual detail is important to that character. Um, but, yeah, it, it, so it allows us to just kind of coexist with all these people that have very specific ideas of, for instance, what the narrator Cecil looks like, and that's fine because we don't describe Cecil, so that just isn't, it's sort of outside of what we do. Still to come, we talk more with the creators of Night Vale and with Cecil himself, the real Cecil, and one of his fellow cast members. Stay with us. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. 
Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Trisha Bobita here with Greta Johnson. We're talking this week with some of the people behind the insanely popular podcast and touring live show, Welcome to Night Vale. The tour is selling out basically everywhere it goes, and we caught up with them when they were in town with that live show in Chicago. We'll talk more with the show's creators and writers, Jeffrey Craner and Joseph Fink, in just a bit. Next, though, we'll talk with two of the voice actors from the cast, and not just any actors. My name is Cecil Baldwin, and I voice the character Cecil Palmer on Welcome to Night Vale, which is the sort of main narrator of the podcast, and that's what I do. (laughs) And I'm Symphony Sanders, and I play Tamika Flynn, a 14-year-old revolutionary in the (laughs) world of Night Vale, notorious for killing librarians with books. (laughs) So so good. So So I do that. Night Vale has some of the most rabid fans of anything that exists on the internet, and those fans make really cool art online. We asked Cecil and Symphony to tell us why they think there's this level of fan enthusiasm and engagement, and how they interact with it. The accessibility of the internet is completely changed the way that I think artists not only create art, but also... How you consume like, it. How, how you consume and it. And also, with it. Yes, it's like, it's like that feedback loop where, you know, you put something out there and then within seconds you get a feedback on. And sometimes it's good and sometimes you don't <laughs> want feedback. Sometimes, I mean, it's, it's okay to just be like, this is what I've made and I'm going to put it out there and let it be. And sometimes you want to be like, oh, we're trying something new here. What did the, the public at large think? And uh, it's just knowing when to take that and when to put it on a shelf and just step away from it. Everyone that we tour with and everyone involved in Night Vale, I think, has different levels of social media aptitude as well. (laughs) Like, I only signed up for... I feel like you put that very tactfully. (laughs) I mean, I only signed up for Twitter like a year and a half ago. Mm. You know, I was all Facebook and that was about as complicated as I got. And with the rise of this cult status, this cult phenomenon that came out of Night Vale, I was like, oh, I've got to get savvy. (laughs) I've got to get real savvy. Like Symphony is. I'm I'm a social media. A butterfly. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I'm, you know, I'm like, I usually tell people, I'm like, oh, just Google me. I'm on the Internet. I'm on the Internet. I'm from the Internet. (laughs) So, yeah, you you know know me from the Internet. You know me from the Internet. (laughs) Yes. But like uh, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr. You know, They're LinkedIn, all, Facebook, all of yeah, that. It's yeah. all valid. It's and it's all ways it's that fascinating. In, that independent artists can yeah. not only get their stuff out there, but also find out who is listening and who is mm-hmm. watching and who is digging it, you know, and it's all over the world. I remember the first time I did Google myself after Night Vale kind of started to blow up a little bit. And I was with an old friend, like a high school friend, and she and I just fell down the rabbit hole, (laughs) you know, uh, specifically about fan art. 
and, you know, just a Google image search under my name. And it was all these drawings of me that wasn't me. That's a character that I've created, but they've added all these other elements and mm-hmm. taken them and turned them on its head and all the different ways that this character in this world can be perceived, um, which, you know, then I took in and was like, oh, wow, this is what this show is about. You know, I thought it was, you know, just creepy, funny, weird (laughs) podcast that I make in my apartment with my friends. Um, But people take it to a whole other level and you have to start respecting that. And, you know, that's what nerddom fan. I actually want to say that I hate the the phrase uh, geekdom Mm. uh, because to me it implies that there is a monarchy involved. There is a king geek or a queen geek (laughs) somewhere. And and it's not that like nerdocracy. It's more of a nerdocracy. That's a good You know, like, even though I make this thing, I'm not in control of it. I just I just add a piece of the component and the fans are just as much a part of that. And the other people who write and produce and act and make the music for it, like we're all part of this thing. It's not a monarchy, (laughs) you know. One of the things I love about making audio, whether it's a news story or a podcast, is that you are doing most of the work. Mm-hmm. to create the story and the pictures for the audience, but they have to partner with you to make right. the rest of the picture in their head. Sure. I think we think of radio and, and podcasting as very passive, but mm-hmm. I don't think it is. I think you're doing more work when you're listening to a podcast than you are when you're watching TV. Oh, I think absolutely. it's pretty aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> it's active aggressive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Night Vale's doing this traveling live version of their podcast, but I wondered if Jeffrey and Joseph, as the writers had any hesitation about revealing the faces behind their weird world of voices. Would seeing Cecil and the others take away some of the magic? Joseph said he's not worried about that. Oh, I mean, I think it does not do that at all. Like, I I think the thing about how we do the stage show is it's Cecil standing in front of a microphone in just his clothes. There's no set. There's no props. Because it's not a performance of that kind. It's a live radio theater. Everyone stands in a line with microphones holding scripts. And so that, to me, that invites imagination as much as the voice does. Night Vale comes from this tradition of storytelling, this idea of people on a stage without anything else just telling you a story. And that, I think, is sort of the first form of storytelling that ever existed, and I think it'll probably be the last form. It's just this very simple, enduring, basic form of storytelling, and that's really what we try to do. Yeah, and with the live shows, too, there's so much about the audience interaction. You know, we write our live show scripts to be aware of the fact that there's an audience in the room. You know, there's we don't do the fishbowl style of theater, which is just where you close off the fourth wall, the glass wall there. We want to write scripts for Cecil and the actors to acknowledge the presence of the audience, to use their energy, sometimes quite literally involve the audience, and other times just do so with the energy in the room. Yeah, when you write a live script in in a way you don't with podcasts, you always have to be thinking about the response to the audience. There's definitely times where, for instance, like introducing a character, I'm having to carefully order the sentences because I need some information to be said, but I know that as soon as this sentence is said, there's going to be cheering for a while. Yeah. And so I have to like, I have to kind of, yeah. I have to set the rhythm of that thing around the fact that I know there's going to be an audience response there. Cecil and Symphony did say fans find it jarring to see them up close and in person. 
you know, when we go out and talk to fans, we always get the, oh, you didn't look like what I thought you'd look like. Mm-hmm. You look different. Or, I got, you know. I, I've gotten, oh, you're much prettier than I thought you'd be. <laughs> and I'm like, thank oh, you. No. It feels like a compliment, but I is it? <laughs> but I think it's because uh, I'm 14. In the right. show, yeah, and I'm like, fair. I'm like, I am a full grown woman. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true. That's I'm hilarious. small, but I am mighty. <laughs> Peter Segel has this whole bit when he does Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Live, where he like tells all these jokes right in the beginning. That's like, I'm just gonna talk now so that you can actually ignore me and just get used to what I look like, so that we can carry on with <laughs> yes. the rest of the yes. show. <laughs> Which I feel like is pretty perfect, right? Because yeah. there is that moment of just like, what? Like, I'm still listening to you guys being like, Oh my God, it's them. This is yeah, what, yeah. like it yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah. It happens. What, I mean, that's part of it you know we're talking about like the difference between performing on the podcast and performing live Mm -hmm. is like right now I'm using my hands to gesture and I'm using my face to convey messages and when you're on the radio you get none of that (laughs) you know and it's one of those things where you have to kind of take all those secondary psychological cues that we as actors are used to watching and audience members are used to accepting. As and, Trisha and I like nod yeah. enthusiastically. Right, right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. And you have to kind of focus it all into your voice. And the cool thing about the live shows is that we get to like pull those bag of tricks yes. out and like <laughs> put them on display. Yeah. Physicality becomes a huge thing with the audience and audience participation and being able to look someone in the eye and talk right to them, which is the experience they feel when yeah. they're listening to a podcast and their headphones are plugged in. And it's it's so much fun. It's so much fun. But it is like a totally different bag of tricks. That is what I hear a lot in the signing line usually. They'll be like, you know, this is my first live show and this is a totally different experience than when I'm at home, I'm like, yeah, there's the energy of everyone else, mm-hmm. you know, and you're getting to see what we look like and us move. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing, like what I love about the live shows is the fans that get to interact with other fans, mm. you know, because unless you like have a listening party in your hometown or with amongst your friends, it's, you know, podcasting radio. It's a pretty solitary thing, like maybe in your car, on your commute to work, wherever. And then all of a sudden you walk into a theater with hundreds of people that love the same thing that you do. A lot of times one of my favorite things is when we'll be backstage, the theater is filling up and we're getting ready and getting dressed and doing our thing. And we'll just hear like a round of applause happen (laughs) from the audience. And we're like, what is going on? We haven't started. I've got 20 minutes. I bet there's a glow cloud out there. And... (laughs) People applaud each other's mm-hmm. costumes because they get oh. so elaborate and so it's like it's this crazy mix of like pageantry and like Rocky Horror Picture Show yes. cult phenomenon so that, good. you know, where people pick their favorite characters and they dresses them and they come in groups where, you know, you'll have a whole group of hooded figures and they'll be holding a sign that says, don't enter the dog park. It's amazing. It's like Halloween and, you know. Which is my favorite. Which is, of course, our favorite holiday. But it's like all of that in one and they get to interact with each other and they make friends with each other and hopefully, you know, it's, I mean, that's art. That's what art should be doing is creating communities. It's amazing. Thanks to the writers and cast of Welcome to Night Vale. In just a bit, we head back to the alternate universe that is Night Vale for a bunch of really good homework. But first, with Caitlyn Jenner making headlines this week, we wanted to look back at the history of trans women who came before her and the fight for LGBT equality. 
The history of trans women is intertwined with the history of feminism. So let's start by going way back to Akron, Ohio in 1851, where Sojourner Truth gave her speech, Ain't I a Woman? It's the first time in American history we can find that an argument was made that the fight for gender and racial equality were one fight. The iconic actress Cecily Tyson performed it in honor of Sojourner Truth on C-SPAN in 2009 with Hillary Clinton and John Boehner sitting behind her on stage. Poet Alice Walker and actress Carrie Washington, star of the ABC show Scandal, have both performed it too. Artist NKG delivered her version at a TEDx conference and Maya Angelou, known for her own words on equality, also once recited the speech. That man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and given the best place wherever. Nobody helps me into carriages, nor over the muddy patches, or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at me. Look at my arms. Hmm? I done plowed and planted and gathered into barns, and no man could head me. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have borne 13 children and seen most all sold off to slavery. And when when I I cried cried out out with with a mother's mother's grief grief, and none but Jesus could hear me, ain't I a woman? They talk about this thing in the head. What's that they call it? Intellect. That's it, honey. What's intellect got to do with women's rights or Negroes' rights? If my cup won't hold but a pint and yours holds a quarter, wouldn't you be mean not to let me have my little half measure full? This man in the black, yes, yes, you, 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 yes, he says, <laughs> women's can't have as much rights as men's because Christ won a woman. Well, where your Christ come from? Where did your Christ come from? From God and a woman. Man had nothing to do with him. <laughs> If the first woman God ever made was strong enough to turn the world upside down all alone, (laughs) these women together ought to be able to turn it back and get it right side up again. (laughs) And now they's asking to do it. You men better let them. That's all I have to say. Much obliged for your listening to me. Those were the voices of Maya Angelou, Cecily Tyson, Nkechi, Alice Walker, and Carrie Washington reciting Sojourner Truth's 1851 speech. You're listening to the Great Lady Nerds of American History special from Nerdette. That question, ain't I a woman, is central to another modern-day civil rights movement. One of the most vocal trans women of our time, the Orange is the New Black actress, Laverne Cox, articulated the struggle recently in front of an audience at Marymount College. 
It is my belief that one of the biggest obstacles facing the transgender community are points of view which disavow our identities, points of view which suggest that no matter what we do, we are always and only the gender that we were assigned at birth, points of view which suggest that no matter what I do, I'll never be a woman. Yet, ain't I a woman? Sojourner Two spoke those words at the Ohio Women's Convention within the context of a women's liberation struggle which suggested that she wasn't really a woman because she was black. She spoke those words within the context of a culture which suggested she wasn't even really human because she was black. I stand here tonight in the tradition of Sojourner Tooth claiming my womanhood within a context which would often deny it. We asked two other trans activists to help us get to know some of the fierce women who led the fight for queer rights in America. For me, it's not just about activism. It's about living life with bravery. This is Precious Davis. She's a Chicago-based performer and trans activist. At LGBT Haven, the center on Halstead, She's the Youth Outreach Coordinator. I love to honor women of history who were resilient and who overcome obstacles. And Marsha P. Johnson, of course, is one of them, you know, who is known in history as the first woman to throw the brick, which ignited this huge riot. It's not entirely clear who threw the first brick, or bottle, at the Stonewall Riots in 1969. But witnesses say Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were there. The two trans women were central to the New York scene. It was truly the heart that was speaking of Marsha to bring people together and to share harmony and to build community. She was worshipped and adorned. The queen of the island. Oh. And the saints of Christopher Street. Oh. Yes. The fuse was lit for the gay rights movement at Stonewall, but soon the crowds who had cheered when Marsha P. or Sylvia performed in drag shows shunned them from political stages. Here's Sylvia trying to speak at the 1973 Christopher Street Liberation Day rally in New York. The women have tried to fight for their sex changes or to become women of the women's liberation. And they write Thor, not the women's group. They do not write women. They do not write men. They write Thor. Because we're trying to do something for them. I wanted to bring Jen Richards, a trans activist in Chicago, into this conversation, too. Here's her take on how the trans movement evolved in the years after Stonewall. With the exclusion of us from the wider gay rights movement, it's with that exclusion that Marsha and Sylvia form STAR, the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries. And you get Angela Douglas out in L.A. with the transgender activist organizations. Come and see the people at Star House on 12th Street, on 640 East 12th Street, between B and C. The people that are trying to do something for all of us and not men and women that belong to a white middle class, white club. And that's what you all belong to. Revolution now! Star was the only organization of its kind in New York. It's taken diligence to make sure that the surrogate mothers of these street kids, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, aren't forgotten. Precious is absolutely right to mention Sylvia Rivera and Marsha Johnson and the kind of prototype for the trans woman as a resistor, whether it's gay assimilation or just to the kind of erasure of street youth and queer street culture. 
And I give a lot of credit to Sylvia Rivera Law Project in New York City, which has done a really great job of resuscitating Sylvia's reputation and her place in history and placing her in the context of the gay liberation movement. Jen says while Stonewall may have been the tipping point, it wasn't the beginning of the movement for queer equality. At least as early as 1959 at Cooper's Donuts in L.A., but also at Dewey's in Philadelphia in 1965. And what happens in all these cases is that you've got urban areas, which are lower income, and in those areas you have a gathering of street culture, and you have gay men and, you know, what at the time would have been called street queens and transvestites, you know, lesbians, hustlers, would gather at these all-night diners and whatnot, and then the police wanting to crack down on it. The easiest excuse cops had were laws against cross-dressing. Since the 1850s, many places in America had laws on the books prohibiting people from dressing opposite the norms of the gender they were assigned at birth. Some of those people might have identified as gay men or transvestites, but a lot of them would be what we'd call trans women today. It was because these women, these street queens, were part of the larger culture there that when they were being arrested, it was the community around them that was also resisting and fighting back and the queens themselves who were fighting back. So you've got this happening for a good decade leading up to Stonewall, whether it was Marsha, Silvera, anyone who threw the first bottle or brick. The fact is, is that we were part of that community all together and we were resisting together. In many ways, the LGBT community is more united now than it was in the 1970s. But the marginalization of trans people, even within the queer community, is still an issue. The kind of median point of the media, their depiction of trans people, is certainly improving. We still have a long, long way to go. You know, I can't watch live television for more than a couple hours without seeing a kind of throwaway joke. You know the joke, where a trans woman shows up on a sitcom or a TV show as a punchline instead of a person. Thanks to Jen Richards and Precious Davis for joining us on Nerdette. That conversation was recorded last summer. Learn more about all the great lady nerds of history we feature at nerdappodcast.com. As promised, we're now back in the land of the otherworldly glow cloud and the whispering forest. That would be Night Vale, Trisha. And your homework from the Night Vale folks from Cecil First is to enlist a couple of your nerd friends to help you, because this is a big task. He wants there to be a master list that he can search and that all fans of the show can see of all the literary references tucked in the nooks and crannies of the scripts for Night Vale, because the writers sneak in a lot of them, from Harry Potter to the most classic canon literature. Use your illusion. We also got homework from Jeffrey and Joseph. Here's your homework from Jeff first. Go just watch all of the movies by Swedish director Roy Anderson. He has a new movie coming out. It's been out for a while, but I think it's finally opening in American cinemas. The name of the film is A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence. (laughs) And uh, Roy Anderson is really wonderful. He's so surreal and so funny. I mean, there's kind of a Swedish David Lynch quality to what he does. I would say he's much funnier, much more surreal. His previous two films that I've seen are are Songs from the Second Floor and You the Living. Anyways, if you have a chance to check those out or even just get on YouTube, if they're not on Netflix or what have you, just look up Roy Anderson with two S's, 
watch some of those clips. He has some great commercials, things like that. I think he's wonderful. I think the surreal poetic quality of his work is definitely an inspiration for when I'm writing Night Vale scripts. He navigates this world of sorrow and beauty and absurd hilarity in a way that we could all dream to achieve. That is my favorite. Okay, so Roy Anderson? Roy Anderson. Okay, so homework from Jeffrey is to check out Roy Anderson. What about you, Joseph? I mean, obviously watch It Follows. Uh, If you haven't (laughs) seen it, you should just go watch It Follows right now. I think if we're talking on kind of a broader scale of assignments rather than just like a recommendation of a specific thing, one thing I've been really trying to do the last year or two is try to read outside of what you usually read. Like really try and go through and honestly look at what you've been reading and identify like, do you read, you know, mostly books written in America and in English? Do you mostly read books by men? That's so easy to do without even realizing you're doing it. And so I've been really trying to look at, you know, for instance, I almost never read books that were written from other countries. Mm -hmm. I pretty much read America and the UK. And so I've been really consciously trying to find books outside of that. And it it really is something that takes conscious thought, because if you just rely on what usually looks interesting to you, you just keep going back to the same type of books. And so you really have to be like, okay, I'm going to go and find a book that maybe doesn't even look interesting to me at first, because it's not the type of book I usually read. And then you find yourself really enjoying books that you, you never would have come across otherwise. Oh, Trisha, this is such good homework for me to be getting. I'm such a big fan of the novel and the ridiculous sci-fi story. I really should be branching out more. Time now for Nerd Confessions. Hi, my name is Seth. I live in Washington, D.C., and this is my Nerd Confession. I do do a lot of nerdy things, but perhaps the single most nerdy thing I do is to write parody songs that with one exception, I don't record because I have very little musical talent, but I will write uh, I will write parody songs about just about anything. The uh, effects of having grown up with Weird Al, but I, I think the single nerdiest moment I had was when I wrote a two-thirds to three-quarters length parody of Trouble. We got Trouble from The Music Man in order to convince a group of friends to buy the Pathfinder card game so I could kind of play some sort of RPG without actually sitting down and making characters. And it worked, and it was great. That is pretty beautifully nerdy. Trisha? I love many things about this. I love that it involves the American musical theater canon. Yeah, honestly, I thought you were just going to jump right into trouble. Like, that's what I was well, waiting Well, we got trouble, my friends. Right here, I say trouble right here in River City. Is. I'm talking about the there kids in the knickerbocker, short-tailed young ones. <laughs> Peeking in the pool hall when it's after school, you got trouble. <laughs> right here in River City. <laughs> I would say that the hours you spend with a cue in your hand are golden. Ooh, that's a nice line. I think we've got I think we've got a good sense of how well you know the song. Thank you, Trisha. That was <laughs> really beautiful. <laughs> well done. We need you to send your nerd confessions in too. It's gotta be about when you were at your nerdiest. Everything from epic fails to humble brags. Welcome. We're looking for examples of a moment in your life when extreme enthusiasm, yours or somebody else's, had a memorable result. Call us and leave your nerd confession, 312-600-5638. That's 312-600-5638. Or call and suggest a great lady nerd of history for us to profile, or just say hi. We love your voicemails. 
Thanks again to Jeffrey, Joseph, Cecil, and Symphony from Welcome to Night Vale for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into our Game of Thrones recaps every Monday with Peter Segel. Next week on Nerdette, author Eric Larson. In my case, it's about immersing yourself deeply enough to pass that you get a real sense of what it might have been like in that day that you're writing about when you're aboard ship, when you're having some fabulous meal on the Lusitania halfway through the voyage. And it's very... It's very powerful and also very necessary to get to the point where things start to come alive for you. Eric Larson is very well known for the idea of highly narrative-driven nonfiction, which he sort of takes issue with because all nonfiction should be narrative, he says. But he's probably most well known for his book, The Devil in the White City. He also just came out with a book called Dead Wake. It's about the sinking of the Lusitania. We'll hear more from him next week. And thanks again to Jen Richards and Precious Davis. This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. With help from WBEZ's Joe Dassault and his squire, Brad Helm. Squire, who's a knight in training. Oh, okay. Good to know. Good to know. You can find links to all of the things, including sign-up thingies, for our weekly email newsletter at nerdatpodcast.com. You can listen to us wherever you are, because you already are. But we'd appreciate it if you took the plunge and subscribed on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. We share links to things we love on Facebook, which you can see if you like us there. We're on Twitter at nerdatpodcast, and we'd be very interested to hear what you think about the new season of Orange is the New Black, which drops very soon. Yay! We're also at Nerd at Podcast on Instagram, which is where I write pocket-sized book reviews. Teeny tiny book reviews. <laughs> Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Throw some stars and write a review if you're feeling generous. Like the excellent Kay Fulta did on iTunes. Kay Fulta listens to us while running, so let's encourage Kay Fulta to run faster. I like it better when you just do it. Yeah, I'm not even going to put in the music. Or can we, I want to do a different song. Can we do the final countdown? That's what I would have done. Oh, I was going to do the Karate Kid. You're the best around. Nothing's going to ever keep you down. You're the best around. I don't know what to do with this part. Anyway, Kafolta, thank you for the stars on iTunes. There's one other way you can help Nerdette. If you're a nerd with a business or who works for one that wants to get your message heard by Nerdette listeners, you can underwrite the show. Email nerdettepodcast at gmail.com to learn more about sponsorship opportunities. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.